0818-715-815. Hello, good afternoon, and you're very welcome to Liveline. Joe at RT.ie, 51551 is the text number, and 0818, as you heard, 715815. Uh, Ian Bailey, RIP, uh, journalist, uh, former diplomat, uh, author, uh, Nick Foster. Nick, good afternoon. Hey, Joe, good afternoon. Thanks for having me on the show. And you uh, have written a book about this subject, uh, and you're on WhatsApp, which is great for clarity. Nick Foster, did Ian Bailey get away with murder? He certainly did. He certainly got away with murder, and it's... You know what? It's a crying shame. I mean, it's a crying shame for Sophie's family. It's a crying shame for her son, who knows that he'll never see justice. It's a crying shame that all these years, Sophie's parents have suffered, and they're not going to see justice either. And um, it's also a crying shame for the people of West Cork. I mean, you know, if there'd been a trial in Ireland, Mm -hmm. you know what? It would have been up to a jury of Irish women and Irish men to decide on the guilt of Ian Bailey. But I think that had there been a trial, that stain that's there in the landscape in West Cork, that would have that would have been lifted. And as such, it's still there. At one stage, Ian Bailey described you as a supporter of his. How did it turn? Yeah, he did. I mean, that 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 that, that takes me all the way back to. Um, do you remember November um, 2014, Bailey? Mm-hmm. Uh, launched uh, an action at the at the four courts in Dublin yeah. uh, against the Goddess Yochana and and the Irish state, and that was essentially that was the first time that I that I, that I met him. Bella. It was the first time I've been to Ireland actually. I kind of flew in to um, sit mm-hmm. on the press benches and to listen in and to find out more about the case. It would already kind of got under my skin, and um, I got to know um, Ian Bailey. Um, one lunchtime, I mean, you know, there's a recess. I managed yeah. to, you know, I found him, I started talking to him. And it was quite soon after that that he called me a supporter. In other words, he didn't, there wasn't much of a gap. I mean, you know, I think that I invited him to dinner. I had dinner with, with him and his partner, Jules Thomas. And I think it was that very same night that he said, it's good to have another supporter or something like that. When, uh, I know it's a whole process and you investigated thoroughly for your book, Murder at Roaring Water, the inside story of the death of Sophie Toscan Duplantier. And uh, God rest her, may she rest in peace as well. Uh, when, when, did you, when did your suspicions about Ian Bailey begin? And I'm also very conscious reading your book um, that a lot of your, um, contribu- a lot of your uh, um, offers in the book are based on forensics, they're based on interviews with people. Um, what, what what convinced you of Ian Bailey's guilt, Nick? Yeah, that's right. They're based on interviews with people, but they're mm-hmm. based sometimes on interviews that were carried out by Gardaí. Yeah. So they're statements that I found in the in, in the Garda file. Um, Bailey famously described the the file as two thousand pages of rumor, right? But it, it it isn't that at all. And I started to um, suspect Ian Bailey when I got hold of the file, and I got hold of the file from him. Yeah. So Ian Bailey gave me a copy of the of the Garda file, which was on one of those little memory sticks. Okay. And I got to tell you, I mean, when I got hold of the file, I I left his cottage in West Cork. I, I was driving back to um, driving back to the airport, and I just felt like a kid in a sweet shop. You know, I kind of well, you know, mm-hmm. now I can really find out about the case. You know, because you know what happened, um, the the guards did a really good job of going around and interviewing people and finding out what people knew, what they'd seen. 
And so there was a wealth of evidence there that was all um, you know, put together, mm-hmm. sometimes in a fairly haphazard way, but it was all there. And so the case against against Ian Bailey is in the Garda file. And the file, you know, elements of the file, parts of the file, the important bits, I put in the, you know, I put in the book. But it's always seemed to me to be a a sad thing and a, a tricky thing that ordinary Irish people don't have access to the Garda file. They simply don't have access. The number of people who've got it are the people who were given a copy mm-hmm. directly by Ian Bailey or indeed his 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 legal team, but nobody else has got it. And and it's always been frustrating to me because, you know, um, any normal Irish pe- person would read the file and think, well, that this is this is surprising. But it's also alarming because the case against against Ian Bailey is 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 very strong. And what is your impression, Nick? Because the the Guardian West Cork at the time were portrayed as the Keystone Cops, especially by uh, national media and commentators, that they lost a gate, for example. The gate went missing. How can you lose a gate? That was one headline in one uh, newspaper. Uh, but the Guardi were, were characterised, caricatured in many ways, as... Um, Local local guardie in boots tromping around the place, stomping around the crime scene, contaminating evidence, letting people into the crime scene that shouldn't have been next or near it, including Ian Bailey. First of all, what do you think, having, having read the file, the Garda file, what do you think of that characterisation of the guardie, that there were prejudice, that the, that the whole process was a shambles, that the whole investigation, this is, I heard it being said again today, the whole investigation was a, was a setup and a shambles. Um, do you, does that come across from this 2,000-page file? Well, I'll tell you what comes across. The, 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 I would say that the preservation, the correct preservation of the crime scene was, was never done properly. Mm-hmm. Um, it was contaminated at a very early hour after the murder. And so I think that that um, put the whole investigation and all these years later on a very poor footing, very sadly. And I think if the um, crime scene had been properly um, maintained, properly mm-hmm. protected, so somebody was able to, to, to wander onto it, and um, um, let's say in the morning after the crime, then we would be in a position where um, a jury of, of, of Irish women and Irish men would have, you know, um, pronounce a verdict on, on on Ian Bailey. I'm sure of that. The 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 now to kind of mitigate that a little bit. Um, it's true that the um, that the, the Gardaí did an excellent job in going around, you know, with questionnaires, mm-hmm. um, figuring out what people did, finding out from people if they had any information to share. And you know what, people in West Cork were, you know, they did their civic duty. They really did. They 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 did what they they could to kind of wreck their brain. Sometimes, you know, when you're looking through the file, it's like anything, isn't it? There's, there's stuff in there you think, oh, that's just not, like, that's not going anywhere. That's not important. Um, but what is important really paints a picture of what happened. It really does paint a picture of what happened, and it, and it paints a picture of uh, Gardi, individual Gardi, who did their job conscientiously. They really did. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem was the preservation of the crime scene. Have you still got that memory stick? The file. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've got several of them. I mean, several copies just in case. But you know, it's it's can it, it tells be, a story. Can, like it, can it now be released? I, 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 you know what? I asked myself that question over you know the last months, even years. I mean, I'd love mm-hmm. to release it and just have people, just you know, like you read it and and, and the listeners read it and kind of 
because obviously my book um, is well, I presume no one a kind of an edited version. You know what I mean? You, yeah. you approach something, you know what I mean? And you, you, you tell your story because it's partly a memoir as well. And obviously what I take from the file is a choice. But I'd love it if Irish people could see the file and then decide for themselves, you know what? The DPP should have pounced here. The DPP should have organised a, a trial and, and the Bailey should have been put on trial. Now you and let's go back to the start. First of all, and I'll come to another caller in a second. I'll come back to you. Oh eight one eight seven one five eight one five. One of the first people to contaminate the scene was Ian Bailey himself. Yep, that's they, absolutely true. Just remind listeners yeah. how he did it, and you believe why he did it. Right. Well, um, that's true. So um, the chronology is something like this. Um, just after 11 a.m., the local doctor, so not the state pathologist, but the local mm-hmm. doctor, came in and pronounced Sophie dead. Um, if you imagine that you've got a you've got a guard who's protecting the body, but where are people going to arrive, or where, where are cars going to arrive, or, or pedestrians? Well, they're going to arrive from the main road at the other end, right? They're not going to yeah. arrive from where the houses are. I got a tip off um, about six months after my book came out, and I tell you something, I, I, I get plenty of people contact me pretty much every day about this story. Mm-hmm. Um, but this tip-off was a little bit different. It was quite formal. It was somebody called me and said, you know, want to check my name. You want to make sure I said yes. He said, I've got this to tell you. And basically it was this, that um, Ian Bailey managed to contaminate the crime scene way before he officially found out about the uh, about the murder. So that would have been just after the, um, the doctor left, sometime after 11 a.m., on the morning after the murder, what did that mean? It meant that in in practice, it meant that since the guards were unable to stop Bailey from, um, you know, marching up to Sophie's body and crouching down over Sophie's body, that's what I was told by, by the, you know, in, in this in this tip. Mm-hmm. Um, the DNA from then onwards was off the table. In other words, if Bailey had been put on trial, yeah, and the and the guards or the prosecution said, well, you know. The, the, your DNA was there. Your DNA was there. He'll say, well, of course it was there. Of course it was there. You saw me there. You mm-hmm. saw me there. Mm-hmm. I was there early in the morning. I was there because I'm a, I'm a journalist. I was there because I was visiting a friend who's a neighbour of Sophie, or whatever reason. And, you know, it's really sad. It's really sad because if that, that was a mistake. That was a mistake. They had no reason to know at 11 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. that Ian Bay assumed the proportion of importance that he later assumed, right? They had no reason to believe he was anything other than a journalist who was maybe a bit nosy. But um, it's had such huge repercussions on the case. I'd like to point out as well that, that when I got the, the tip off, you know, I, I got a ticket to, to Ireland. I thought, I need to check to make sure that mm-hmm. this is physically possible, you know, because I, 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 I was, you know, I was informed of how he did it. But I thought, yeah, is it possible to kind of hide out above the crime scene, essentially above the, above the body, the dead body, and come down without um, the guard who was, Looking, let's say, looking in the direction without him, without him um, seeing him Bailey. Bear in mind that in Bailey walks quickly. Um, it was something like eight seconds to get down, mm-hmm. and I think that God had noticed that that Bailey was there. He was already um, crouching over Sophie's body. In fact, that was the that was what the tip off essentially said that because it was read out to me. He said, "This is this is what we have to tell you that that the Englishman even managed to crouch down over." That was the expression used. Uh, the French woman's body. And, you know, from that moment onwards, as I say, it took DNA essentially kind of off the table. Yeah, what did yeah. it also mean? Other parts of the, you know, the the evidence that existed against him were, were, were stressed because they'd kind of lost 
the DNA Avenue at that point. And they were, they were, they were. Did he not also say when he was stopped by a guard that he was delivering kindling to the neighbours beyond Sophie's house? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So the the the, the reason he would have been, um, the reason would have, would have given to, to to the guards there that he was in that locality was that he had a friend who was mm-hmm. who was a neighbour of um, Sophie's, Alfie Lyons. But you know, um, I when I heard this. I kind of realized a lot of things kind of clicked into place. So, for instance, the fact that Bailey was offering photos of the crime scene shot through the bushes, I kind of thought, that's really strange, because if you like walking up the Boreen, there aren't any bushes. It's it's open countryside. It's pasture on one side. On the mm-hmm. other side, it's kind of... Uh, I don't know if you've been, but it's it's there aren't any bushes there. Where are the bushes? Well, by um, a house owned by a family called the Richardsons, and it was there, I think, that, that Bailey was kind of stalking out the, the the crime scene and kind of waiting for a moment when the body was essentially accessible to him, as long as he moved quickly. And that's that's what he did. And um, it's it's a terrible shame. It really is. It's a terrible shame um, that that mistake so early in the in okay. the, the same investigation. But it's a terrible shame. Okay. Okay. Stay, stay with us. I'm talking to Nick Foster. He's the uh, author of. Uh, murder at Roaring Water, the inside story to death of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. Uh, just bef- before I bring in Tom McGuire, Nick, Nick, um, how did you become interested in the case? Because you weren't you weren't based in Ireland. No, no, not at all. Not at all. I was based in, uh, in in Belgium at the time, and I and I and I am again. And I heard about the case the first time on French news, and I think it would have been at the time of uh, Bailey's uh, first arrest. And how it was presented on French news was okay. This is kind of done and dusted. You know what I mean? This is this is going to be this is going to be solved. And I think that the story was at the back of my mind from then onwards. Okay. It was a wonderful article by uh, John Montague in the New Yorker that also the, kind of the, piqued my interest. The poet, yeah, based in Cork. Yeah, exactly. And then afterwards, well, tell, just just yeah, from, the first just, moment was just remind listeners of that John Montague article because it was quite powerful, but it hasn't got much traction here in Ireland. Uh, briefly, Nick, the John Montague yeah, article, well, was, because because he knew Ian Bailey. Absolutely, he 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 employed Ian Bailey as a as a gardener, and during that whole period, Ian Bailey went to uh, Montague with with his poems, and I get the impression that Montague kind of slightly you know brushed him off, hmm. um, but he was also fairly um, fascinated by by Ian Bailey, um, and the the article the articles you know quite I mean, it's a moving article because it because it it, it talks about it talks for the first time about this stain that kind of descended on West Cork that that hasn't been lifted. Mm. It doesn't include very much evidence because Montague didn't have access to to any of the the, the God of Fire or anything like that. But as a kind of a portrait of Ian Bailey, it's it's very 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 interesting, and of course a portrait of a young Ian Bailey that, that goes without saying. But he spoke about his temper. He speak, it wasn't it wasn't an affection yeah. portrait. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Spoke about his temper. Spoke about Bailey's attempts to kind of find excuses for that or say that he was sorry and and so on. Um, I think Montague saw through all of that. Um, Bailey, for his part, I think was a bit miffed that that Montague didn't show a bit more interest in his his verse, but... Um, well, so be it. But I came across that article as well. But I think I think the first time I read it was mm-hmm. when it was referred to in your book when you when your book came out. Uh, to stay stay with us, uh, Nick Nick Foster, Tom McGuire's former sure. presenter in Radio Kerry and former uh, head of RT Radio One. Tom, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Did Ian Bailey get away with murder? 
I don't know. And I become even more confused this morning when you begin to listen to all of the commentary mm-hmm. because I met him in March of 1997 and it was a time probably when tabloid media was at its zenith in Ireland and mm-hmm. the story was being told. We had been summoned, I was a reporter at RT in Cork at the time, and we'd been summoned to Bandon when we were told that there was a suspect being questioned, which kind of was unusual, but there would be a tip-off like that. And that happened a number of times, at least twice, maybe three times, journalists, national journalists and local journalists were camped in Bandon waiting to see what happened. What struck me, first of all, was that, that he, I think, was questioned on his own the first time. The second time, Jules Thomas, his partner and himself, were questioned. But both of them walked out, walked to their cars and went home. And they didn't make any attempt to take a back door or a different exit or anything Mm -hmm. else. They they just went home. And in the following days, um, there had been references to the person who had been questioned. Because at the time, um, one wouldn't name someone who was questioned but not charged. And... None of the media would do that at the time. But then, a few days later, the tabloid media began to publish Ian Bailey's name and his picture. And I was still working on the story in Cork, Mm -hmm. and I talked with the news desk, and there was a reticence about doing anything in terms of an interview with Ian Bailey. And that, that went on. We discussed it for a couple of days at conferences until I got a call on a wet Wednesday afternoon, I think, Mm-hmm. to say, could I set that up? So I write Ian Bailey. I had vaguely known his name because in Cork at the time, RTE also had a local radio service. Oh, yeah, yeah. And in, in, in terms of that, he would have been someone who would have um, tipped us off about stories in West Cork. So I wouldn't have known him, but I would have known his name. Okay. And it, it was a name that came in occasionally to the news desk. So I called him. And he took my call and said, I'd be very welcome. The, the place he lived in Skull was called The Prairie. And we set off with the cameraman, a very experienced cameraman, Joe McCarthy, and Pascal Cassidy, who was a young sound operator. And the three of us headed for West Cork about lunchtime. And it's, it's about a two, two and a half hour drive at the time. I wondered how I was going to approach this because it was the first time I, as a journalist, would have... Um, been assigned a story like this. And I made my mind up in the car on the way down that I would dispense with any niceties and the first question I would ask him was Mm -hmm. the question everyone was asking. When I got there, we decided because of lighting and because of the space that we would do the interview outside. Now, it was a really strange environment because mention has been made of hens and turkeys and Christmas and fowl, but there were... There were birds of fowl of all sorts around the yard, bantam hens and chickens, and the noise, it was, it was almost Hitchcock-like in a way when you stood there and you saw this <laughs> big man, mm-hmm. six foot five, and I was looking up at him, and I was waiting for the guys to get the camera and sound operated. And I stood, and then we, I said good day, and I said, Ian Bailey, did you kill Sophie Tuscan de Platier? And there was a pause of, I'd say, maybe seven or eight seconds. 
And then he said he mm. didn't. And from that day to this, and through that afternoon, as I tried to look into the viewfinder of a camera because we didn't have anything digital at the time to see what the timings might be for my colleagues to edit because we were back just in about time for the 6-1 okay. news. Um, I still thought that the pause was really important. And the editors thought the same because I think on the original bulletin, that pause might not have been seven or eight seconds, but certainly it was left for three or four seconds to illustrate it. And, and that struck me that, that if if you were so sure that you didn't do it, why pause? And reading, I presume you read Senator Maloney's piece this morning, who was who was also, you were the first to do a broadcast interview with him. Uh, Senator uh, was around the same time uh, for the newspapers. Um, he is 100% convinced of Ian Bailey's guilt. 100%. But you're not. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm not convinced because I, I just would ask the question again, where is the evidence that in some ways in listening to Nick, that it was, the, in, if you look at it from another point of view, mm-hmm. it was the nature of the man that if there was a crime scene in West Cork, that he would be sniffing around that crime scene and that he would be making a shilling with some of the national media print or with RTE mm-hmm. or with anyone if there was a story. So that, in a sense, didn't surprise me that he was at the scene because if there was anything happening around Skull, he generally knew about it. But um, did, he, so did, he, did he not reveal information to Senna Maloney and indeed other people, Helen Callan and Eddie Cassidy of the Examiner, did he not reveal information that only someone who had been there would have known at that stage on the morning of? Like that, that she was yeah, a French but, woman. But as, as Nick said, he was there. Yeah, but he revealed. Yeah, but Nick, sorry. Do you want to come in? There? Yeah, well, first of all, that, that, that's super interesting about the about the pauses. Um, I had exactly the same thing, and when when Bailey kind of asked him, obviously more than one straight out, did you kill? Did you kill Sophie? And and, and I got the same pause. Um, also noticed um, that Bailey's voice kind of went up. Uh, I'm not quite what you'd say up, up in tone a little bit. And he said no yeah. over and over and over again, as if he was kind of trying to convince himself. Um, so mm. I was, um, yeah. I mean, I I think along you know along with with several people, I I was I was very confused by this. You know, it didn't seem to me to be a very convincing way of um, you know kind of um, demonstrating or, or telling me about, okay. uh, now, every, about uh, the innocence. You know, every interview about this today comes comes back to the, the fact that two directors of public prosecution. Uh, Jim Ham- James Hamblin and Eamon Barnes. Now, that they both threw out the case. They, they didn't proceed with the case. They said that the case was flawed. Now, you you argue, and it is it was argued in court as well, it's it's on the basis of, of Gardaí being heavy-handed, to say the least, allegedly heavy-handed. But the fact is, Nick, that two directors of public prosecution, now I know they they were sequential and one told the other subsequently, um, but that was totally above board. But two, two DPPs have thrown out the case. They decided in Dublin not to take Ian Bailey to court and not yeah, to look, put I him mean, in front of a jury. Why? You've seen the file. Should that, why, why isn't that file released and let people read it? I, well, indeed, you know, I can't, I can't speak for the two DPPs. I mean, what, was, what happened was there was a... DPP internal report, which was leaked 
think around mm. 2001. And in that report, there is a position that's taken against putting Ian Bailey on trial. If I can just give one example, maybe that's useful for for listeners here. So Ian Bailey uh, admitted to several people that he killed Sophie yeah. Dusk and the yeah. Plantier. He was running around basically in the you know in the days and weeks after the murder, bit of a panic, and he you know he was telling people he'd he'd killed her and also how he killed her. Now um, later on, Bailey said, "Well, you know that was black humour. Yeah, I was under stress. I was just joking." And that that excuse or that narrative was taken as is by the DPP in that report from two thousand and one. I think it was. So you know, and, and the French. Just to contrast mm. the positions, the French made it absolutely clear um, at the trial in, in, in Paris that words have meaning, right? You, you don't run around saying that you've murdered somebody if you haven't. It's preposterous. There, there's barely a case of that. On the guard, there's barely a case of that. And, and also, it's, it, it, you know, it, it textually it said, you know, that, that, that the, you know, the author of the report said, it, you know, that it was likely to be the case, that these were examples of black humour on the part of Ian Bailey. I don't think that's true at all. And also, it's not what the... Well, that's a judgment. Isn't that a judgment? Stood. Isn't it's, that, it's a judgment, it, but, but it's, a, it's a contentious one. It's got to be contentious. OK, OK. Because did, did, did the French police were given the guard of file, isn't that correct? Yeah, yeah, they, they were given the guard of file at, at, at one point. I don't and, know what... And there was, the, a lot of, there was a lot of objections exactly. here from some elements of the media that... Um, this, yeah, they had their own file as well, you know. They had their own file as well. They yeah. carried out their they, interviews and they, they had their own file. They came over and interviewed people here, uh, detectives, which was unusual in itself, but they did come over. Okay, I'm talking to Absolutely. Nick Foster and Tom McGuire. We're talking about uh, the uh, death of uh, Ian Bailey and, uh, of course, uh, the uh, murder, the horrific murder of uh, Sophie Toscan de Plantier. Joe at RT.ie. 51551 is our text number. 0818-715-815. Talk to Joe on 0818-715-815. Talk to Joe on 0818-715-815. I'm talking to Nick Foster, who's the author of Murder at Roaring Water, the inside story of the death of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. And uh, also on the line at the moment is Tom McGuire, formerly ahead of the station, but it was a reporter for RT and then subsequently a presenter on uh, Radio Kerry, so knows that part of the country uh, extraordinarily extraordinarily well. Uh, Nick, the two, okay, the, 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 the two people, I'll, I'll throw their names at you, Maliki Reid and uh, yeah. that's, that's page uh, 54 in your book. Maliki, yeah. 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 Tell, exactly. tell us his story and then I'll ask you about the Shelleys. Maliki Reid. Yeah, so um, Maliki Reid is a, a teenager, was a teenager, who got a lift from uh, Ian Bailey several weeks um, after the um, after the murder. It was common practice that people would give lifts to, you know, other people's kids, you know what I mean? If you had kids at the same school, that was common practice in the Skull area at the time. And um, Bailey gave a lift to this, uh, to this young man and said that he'd gone up that night and mm. bashed Sophie's brains in with a rock. That's mm-hmm. what he told. Um, that's he, what he told the boys. His, his language was a little bit more florid. Ba- yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sparing your. I'm sparing uh, no, your I appreciate listeners. that, but there was, the, there was, there was, a, there was, there was violence in his language. The way he described it to you. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. So, there's nowhere in the file, nowhere in the file, where where that where that young man uh, says, you know what, um, he, he could have been joking. 
No, he was he was absolutely scared. This was a serious mm-hmm. uh, confession and delivered in, you know, violent language, but also very graphic language. And um, but then that I was that was. Yeah. Sorry, go on. No, that was tested when it was put to 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 the the state that that um that Maliki didn't when he got out of the car he didn't immediately he did not immediately tell his mother of this encounter and now he's only fourteen he told her later. You know what? You know what? This is a a great example of how I think um, I've got teenage boys by the way, so yeah. um, I have some experience in this. But this is a great example of how the DPP in its report in its position paper ascribed adult behaviour to a boy 14. That's crazy. That's crazy. Why Why would it be the case that a 14-year-old boy mm-hmm. would immediately you know, um, bang on the door of the, the Garda station? Why would it be the case that somebody who's, you know, who's, who's bear in mind, I mean, Bailey's a bit, as you've just pointed out, I think Tom pointed out, Bailey's a, a, a big chap. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe he got a bit frightened. Maybe he didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to react. And Maliki, that, Maliki sure was in, Maliki, Maliki, the, the, yeah. connect, the connection with, with uh, Ian Bailey is that Maliki was in class in school with uh, one of Jules, one of Jules Thomas, Thomas's daughters. So daughters, and he, was getting, he was getting a little yeah. home from school. Okay, John. But, but isn't it, that strikes me, that's crazy to ascribe adult, for the DPP to ascribe adult behaviour, to say, you know, this boy should have behaved like an adult. No, it doesn't work like that. But the the sting of what you're saying today so far, and Alasha should tell me about the Shelleys, because he confessed to them as well, uh, and, and that was dismissed by the DPP saying he had drink on him or whatever. Um, the sting of what you're saying today is that guard a file. Why can the Irish public not see it? I mean, that's a great question. I'd love it to come out. I'd absolutely love it to come out. I think that it would be it would be super. Um, yeah, it would be great. Okay, would John, be great to find out John, you John, know, both how how it could be done. Yeah, John O'Donovan is in Cork. John, your question for for uh, Nick, please. Nick Foster, go ahead. John. Yeah, yeah, when you when you asked him to preface the question and said that he believed that Ian Bailey got away with murder, his straight answer to you was yes. No, that means if his answer was yes to your question, Joe, right? Mm-hmm. That to me would suggest he is 100% proof that Ian, Gale, Ian Bailey was 100% guilty. And if he believes that, by giving you that definite answer there today, mm-hmm. right, I mean, didn't quote you in any way or cover it up, that means he should go to the Gardaí because it, be, it links to me and the other listeners out here that if he's that convinced that that's this man, God rest him, now he's gone to his maker, got away with murder, he must have enough evidence or he believes okay. that the Gardaí let, let, have let, enough okay, evidence. Let, let to, Nick, to, yeah, okay, that's a clear question. Nick, do you want to respond to that? If you're 100% yeah, sure... I mean, I mean can, look, the, 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 you know, in, in, in any court of law, a bar is placed at a certain level, right? So um, in France, for instance, it's intimate conviction, what you feel in your heart of hearts. That's, that's what jurors are asked to consider, you know, mm-hmm. before they before they deliver a verdict. Um, in, in in England, but also in Ireland, there's a different one. I mean, the concept of being 100% sure is neither, I think neither here nor there. What I can tell you is that I told, I'm certain, I told Bailey as well the same thing to his um, to his face. I mean, I, I told him I was the phone, I confronted him with it. I told him exactly what I thought happened. He put the phone down on me. Um, yeah, but if it's you, also... Yeah, but Nick, just, Nick, if you rang me saying I'm convinced you killed someone, I'd slam down the phone. Yeah, you, you've... You you admitted to, to killing somebody. I mean, bear in mind as well, he admitted okay, the Shelley to several st- people. Okay, the Shelley, the, the, yeah. she- the Shelley story. We're, we're now on New Year's Eve 
and I think it's it's a number of years later. What happened? The Shelley couple that went back to the the prairie, as the house was called. Yeah, Adi, it was a bit of Adi a boozy evening. Yeah. yeah, and 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 Bailey takes out his scrapbook with different um, articles on the um, on the murder. He gets he's, he's he's fairly emotional, and he suggests that 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 he that he that he did it. Now um, the the Shelley couple get get um, a bit spooked by this. They want to leave as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I mean, um, each time, each time, Bailey, when he, when he was alive, said that people misunderstood. Each time when Bailey was alive, said that it was examples of black humour. Not that mm-hmm. any of the people who heard any of this um, detected any humour at all. Um, but, you know, it's, it, in my view, it's entirely a mistake of the DPP to say, Oh, you know what? This is this is likely to be, or, or, or clearly to be, a case of Bailey employing sarcasm or black humour under stress. You know it, that that isn't the first reading of any of this. Yeah, well, just just it's g- not the first g- reading. G- of any fa- of this. Fairness to you, Nick. Give us a bit more uh, a, a picture of that, that that encounter because Bailey was drinking. He went into the room. He came back out. He was crying, was he not? And he went over and exactly. hugged Mister exactly. Shelley. He was crying. He went over and hugged. Mr. Shelley, Mr. Shelley was was you know rather surprised about this. I mean, the Shelley will Shelleys will have known the background. And he said, "I did." He, Mr. Shelley alleges I, that Bailey said, "I did it. I did it. I went up and bashed her head in, and I I I, I, it, I was I got out of control." Yeah, I mean, there's a theme here, isn't there? So again, and the, D, the DPP's what? analysis of that was, which is which is allowed, is that this was uh, first of all Bailey's side said no. Um, he he Bailey was saying they said I did it. They said I went up. I I went up and bashed her head in, and that they, they exactly obviously exactly that's defense, exactly, that's, exactly. that's what he said to me. Also, that, that's also what he said to me for both of them. And I was intrigued by by the whole concept that you would um, apparently confess to such a, a, a an atrocious crime, and then you would you know you would put little conditioners in there. You know they said I did that. You know, they said, you know, it, it just doesn't stand up. It really doesn't stand up. It doesn't stand up also when you know the man. It simply doesn't stand up. And he said um, it and, and so, he, he admitted it to other people, invariably in pubs, uh, with, with a yeah. drink on him. John, I see, John, you're saying that the pressure is now on the Gardaí. Why? The pressure has been on the Gardaí from day one. Well, I They're think the ones, that, it's the Gardaí that were ridiculed. Well, well, they, they were on a right to so because they made a right miss of the crime scene. Like, I mean, yeah, just but uh, now no, we had that. But, but Nick, have you read? Have you, uh, sorry, John, but I'm, I'm referring to Nick. Uh, John, we haven't seen the Garda file, the 2000 pages. Nick, no, Foster, we haven't. Nick Foster has. The French yeah, authorities but, have. Now, hang on. Yeah, but, Nick Foster yeah. has. What's the what's well, the problem? Uh, what's the problem? Maybe maybe the pressure should be well, on the well, DPP's well, office to publish the no, file. The, 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 or the or let, let it be published. The, the, the reason I'm saying, oh, George, that there was more pressure than ever on Gard, you know, because it was convenient as long as Ian Bainey was alive. She was the number one suspect in a lot of people's eyes, in the Gardaí's eyes, right? That number one suspect now has left the, the table, right? So now they'll have to work twice as hard now to prove either well, Ian Ralph, Bainey Ralph, was guilty Ralph, all the time along. Ralph Regal of the uh, respected journalist in, in Cork area with The Independent and others, he said on radio this morning that the cold case... Should continue, but he said there's only one. There was only one person that that they still homed in on in the cold case. This is a new team looking at it, and that person was Ian Bailey. 
But as it, I keeps said, no, it keeps coming back. It keeps coming back to him. It's a waste of your money, taxpayers' money. Can I just finish my point? Though, because the other yeah, chap had a lot of time there. The thing is that look, uh, obviously they're still going to keep him in the frame, right? But the point I'm making is now that he's no longer alive. Right? They're going to have to be seen, be seen to work harder. Because I mean, this has gone on a long time. For, when I heard it last night, the news, I said, God bless Sophie, God bless Liam Bailey, I said, because... And why the, did you say, well, well then hang on, why did you say God rest Sophie? What's she got to do with Ian Bailey? Well, well, I mean, she was she was murdered, and this is the whole case involves around Ian Bailey, and the fact I said it... Two DPPs went to the file, they say, and they they interpreted it, their interpretation of the file is that it wouldn't stand... It wouldn't stand yeah. before a jury. The, the, the point I, I made as I came in when I sympathised when I heard the show was I said that Sophie, I believe, I believe myself and others, that she will never get justice. There'll be okay. no one ever prosecuted. And the fact well, Ian Bailey has gone to his grave now and will possibly never get justice, will never be fooled one way or the other, no. But like, if a man was innocent, I mean, his whole life is destroyed over this and we'll never know. So they're both lost one. They're both now dead. Mm, well... Um, uh, Ian Bailey got 30 years longer than uh, Sophie uh, on God's earth. He did, Rose, Ro- Ro- Roisin, stay there. 5155 and Roisin Sheridan, you knew Ian Bailey. I did, um, Joe. Um, a good few years ago, I have a friend who lives down the road from him in this Nakaha. Okay. And I used to be down there staying a lot. Not enough. And um, I'd go out to walk the dogs. And, you know, quite often I'd come across Ian, you know, he'd either be driving in the gate or pottering mm-hmm. in the garden or whatever. So um, the reason that I'm speaking is that I don't know whether he did it or not. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't like people sort of leaping on him either. And for that reason, at the time, I was well aware of the situation down the road. But I made a conscious decision to chat to him and say hello when I was going past and all the rest, right? Because I don't like anybody being yeah. treated. Okay. Yeah. And you know, so, so, you, so you spoke to him. What were those encounters like, Roisin, as you walked your well, dog? I think I can give you a good idea of what sort of a man he was mm-hmm. in his personality. He was definitely unusual. He had a great sense of uh, drama. Mm-hmm. He had a great sense, like, to, to me, I would put that forward as a possible explanation for the pauses. Like, he would milk every situation that came um, for present himself or drama. And I'll just mention one day um Roshin, Roshin, I am Roshin. I just, I, I'm very keen to hear what you have to say, but I need a better line, and we'll we'll establish that hopefully during this break. Talk to Joe on 0818-715-815 Talk to Joe on 0818-715-815 Get Roshin back in a sec. Joe at RT.E. 51551 text. Fran, you have a question for uh, Nick Foster who wrote the book Murdered Roaring Water, the inside story to death. Sophie Toscan de Plantia, he said it clearly here today. He believes without a shadow of a doubt that Ian Bailey got away with murder, the murder of Sophie. Fran, your question please. Yeah, my question was this, that obviously from the forensic point of view and probably Ian Bailey, whatever he 
his reason for arriving at the, the scene and all that, maybe his, obviously his DNA was going to be there and if he did kill it, well then obviously his DNA is at the scene at that stage, but that didn't make any difference because he was doing his job or whatever. But my point really was that mm-hmm. how did the guards mm-hmm. not take a swab of his face because he said that he got bitten by, scraped by turkey or something all that, which could be obviously true. But if the police were doubting, how, there was forensics, obviously, loads of forensics available at the time. How did someone not, mm-hmm. uh, in the guards and forensics say, well, let's swab his face and let's just make sure his, uh, his DNA on his face, which to me was a very logical thing to do at the time. But obviously a lot of the guards at the time were inept and walking in all over the place. Okay, back to back to the the, the 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 scratches, the scratches on Bailey's hands, which were noticed by two plainclothes guardy who bumped into him in a shop in school, I think. Mm-hmm. And the, and Bailey explained those scratches on his face and on his hands because there was strong evidence that Sophie resisted the savage attack. Mm-hmm. She was hit fifty times with a concrete block. Um, um, how Ian Bailey managed to convince people the scratches were from from one uh, cutting down a, a Christmas tree on on Christmas Eve, which is an unusual time to put up your Christmas tree. But anyway, maybe that's the way to do it in West Cork. And also then killing, he said, three turkeys for the table. Um, he he won on that point, didn't he? Didn't he, Nick? He won on that point. In in that well, pe- he convinced the yes. He- he convinced the EPP on that point. That yeah. doesn't, mean to, doesn't mean to say he won. I mean, the, the, the question with the scratch is it goes to absolutely to the heart of the case. So you have uh, Ian Bailey, who goes the night before the murder to, to a bar in, in Scully. He mm. plays a drum um, with with an audience there. Yeah. He, he rolls up his sleeves to do so. He has no scratches at all yeah. on his arms. No scratches at all on his hands. He goes and pays for drinks a couple of times. The bartender mm-hmm. says, no scratches. When he paid for the drinks, no scratches. The morning after the the, the, the the crime, and we're talking just mere hours after the horrific murder, he did have scratches. His partner said, "Oh yeah." In the morning, he had a he had a gash on his on his forehead. I mean, you know, um, they, that wasn't there the night before. And the problem is that there was something like half a dozen um, individual witness statements that said, "Yeah, he didn't have any scratches that 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 night in the pub." And he was the centre of attention as as he often was playing the drum that night. People didn't see any. So look, it, it's it's very difficult for me to understand how the DPP, um, you know, bought into that narrative that 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 he got scratches from yeah cutting down a Christmas tea and, and being attacked by a turkey doesn't doesn't stand up to doesn't stand to reason. I'm afraid, Fran. Yeah, this guy Nick thing, whoever he is, yeah, he's written. Yeah. It's, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty exhaustive book now. It's three hundred pages, and it's not yeah. a, a lot of it is is text from statements. A lot of it is interviews with people. It's not a it's not an opinion piece. It's three hundred investigative. He's an investigative journalist, Fran. Anyway, go and his name is Nick Foster. Go ahead, Fran. Nick Foster. My point is this, all what Nick is saying about the people who said that he hadn't got scratched another evening or he had scratched or whatever, and they didn't decide, the the DVP didn't decide to uh, prosecute or whatever. Now, surely to God, what Nick is saying there, does he not acknowledge the fact that the forensic people or the guards or whatever, didn't, if they were so, if those scratches, what did they say to him? Uh, well, let's, let's take a swab. I don't want to repeat myself here. But that was a logical thing to do. 
uh, mm-hmm. at the time, and then we wouldn't have all you think, you think that was taken at the time. And you, then if there were scratches on his face, obviously, then he did the, the, the things. That doesn't make sense to me, not doing all those things. So we could we could talk about it until the cows come home, mm-hmm. and Nick is quite entitled to his opinions on the situation. He probably, he obviously, by the sound of him, thinks he did it anyway. Lots of people do. Then there's lots of people who, who didn't. But I think it's, at this point, the, the man is dead now. And yeah, it's 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 tough on her family. Of course, it is. They're trying to get justice for years upon years. But I don't, I don't think it's right to be ridiculing the guy at this stage. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. care. Well, I don't mean I don't. Who's care. ridiculing him? Who's ridiculing him? Who's ridiculing him? You, you, you have you have. From the time he came on, on the radio today, he, he was guilty. Absolutely guilty. Yeah, but that's not ridiculing him. I'm I'm I'm. I'm let Nick answer, Fran. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Look, no Ian Bailey, it, no, Ian Bailey placed himself, as the Irish saying goes, at the at the centre of the public fair. He he got yeah, off okay. on the he got off on the, on the attention that being the principal subject, the only the, the principal suspect, the only suspect in fact in this case. That exists in this case. He, he he enjoyed it. I saw with my own eyes how much he enjoyed it. He enjoyed the attention. Daniel Toscan Duplantier, Sophie's husband, said that he couldn't understand it at all. If it was him, he'd run a million miles away from Skull. He'd run a million miles away from Skull. He'd reinvent himself somewhere else. And he didn't do that because he enjoyed it. I'm not ridiculing. I'm telling you exactly what it was like. He enjoyed okay. it. Enjoyed the attention. Enjoyed okay, it. just want to ask Tom. Tom, Tom, um, Tom, you were Tom McGuire again. Tom, when you you were there. Um, this this is this the heart of the rejection today of that Ian Bailey is is guilty. There's two elements to it. One, the the behaviour of the Gardee. Now, did you notice where where the Gardee, the Keystone Cops, where they? It was Christmas. It was the eve of Christmas Eve. Were they uninterested? Were they otherwise occupied? And then subsequently in January, did they just say it's Ian Bailey? Let's let's construct a case. No, no, I think that it would do a great service to the Gardaí if that file was published because I, I knew two of them very well. One of them was a Longford man like myself and the other who had worked in Kerry and worked in Cork. Mm-hmm. And one has to remember that there have been a number of serious crimes and fatal crimes in West Cork and Kerry over the previous couple of years, which were all solved. And, you know, when you, when you think about that, that in in Cork itself, that it was it was from there the legal profession probably created cab. You know there was there, there was there was, mm-hmm. there was a county solicitor Barry Galvin yeah, yeah. Who, who who fought crime very very strongly. So I I, I don't believe that. I I think okay. that that from what I know that the guard investigation was a very thorough one. Okay, okay, okay. I'll let you go. That's Tom Tom McGuire, former head of uh, Radio One and one of the first, the first person to conduct a broadcast interview uh, with Ian Beatty. Roisin, you're back. Roisin. You're back. You're, 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 I'll, I'll just tell you one small story that okay. would fit into the way you're discussing it and can be read one way or the other. Um, one time when I was walking down the road with the dogs, Mm-hmm. Uh, the dogs ran into his garden and I went over to call the dog and he was um, doing some reading mm-hmm. and um, you know we were saying a nice day and all that and then he said would you like to come in and see the garden so I said thanks very much and I went in and then um, started calling the dog 
And um, we looked at various plants. There were interesting plants, you know, among stones and gravel. And, you know, it was very interesting to look at. And he just, um, at some point, he pointed down to a certain plant. Now, this was out of the blue. And he said, um, that plant is called My Lady Lies Weeping. Or, sorry, My Lady Lies Bleeding. Hmm. And mm. there is a plant called that. I checked it out afterwards. But, like, that would be indicative. This is just somebody passing down the road looking for the dog. And, and were, you, were, you, were you surprised that he used that phrase? My lady lies mm. bleeding. Well, it just washed over me as it was happening. You know, I'm, mm. I'm fairly used to not reacting to things on the spot. Well, looking back um, on looking back on it now, Roisin, does that put a different frame on it? No, because I think it's a very good example of the way his mind worked. Okay. The sort of man he was. Like, he couldn't let one scrap pass without making a drama out of it or trying to make an impression. Okay. Do you know what I yeah, mean? He yeah. just couldn't okay. help Okay, okay. I, t- I take it. Take it. So, so he was... Uh, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm transposing what, what Roshin's saying. He, he was a narcissist, was he not? He was self, self-interested, self-satisfied, uh, self-promoting. Um, he, had, he, had, he had a big need for attention. Yeah. Okay. And he was a man who had a, a good vocabulary, a good turn of phrase. Like, he, he was almost like an actor. Okay, okay, Roisin, Roisin, good to meet you, That's Roisin Sheridan. Rosita Sweetman is calling. Rosita, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. And Rosita, you're a well-known journalist and indeed campaigner and founder member of the Irish Women's Movement. Have you read Nick Foster's book? I have, and it's wonderful to hear Nick talking this morning, and this afternoon, sorry, and um, saying, you know, Saying the Gardaí did a reasonably good job, like the real problem was the DPP in not not putting the case forward for trial. And like one of the extraordinary things the DPP said was that he wouldn't allow um, Bailey's previous record of serious domestic violence against women to go in. That that it wasn't relevant. It's like such a weird. Well, did he not say, know? But is it, is it, that can't be put to a jury, of course. Why uh, not? Because because that's a presumption. You cannot say you cannot tell a jury before a verdict that this man has a history. Otherwise, you're you're you're, you're being prejudicial. That's it, it, that's it long standing. Like he he was. Um, no, I know, I know, not a presumption. But uh, okay, Rosie, let me come another way. Are you saying the DPP? The DPP's office, that's what we mean. We don't mean individual. That the DPP's office knew about Bailey's history, which is pretty savage in, in the UK. Um, and that should have... Yeah, he tried to uh, strangle it, his wife. Yeah, even if that evidence could not be put to a jury, Bailey, that should have uh, propelled the DPP in saying, yes, the jury should hear this case, even though there's some stuff that we'll have to redact. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. That it was... Now, why do why do so many why do so many people, Rosita? You've you've you're a journalist. You you meet people for, for for your work. Why do you believe so many people believe that Ian Bailey has been set up? 
RIP, but that he's been set up. I absolutely cannot understand it. I really can't. Like, I put up um, a, a post on Twitter yesterday saying I believed he was guilty. Mm-hmm. And I believed that for a long, long time. Um, like, and just last night, I rewatched a piece by four FBI experts who are experts in body language. Um, and they look at uh, Ian Bailey's case on the basis of an RTE interview. And they actually end up laughing. They say it's so blatantly obvious he's lying through his teeth. Like, And the, the mm. in piece goes on for an hour and 20 minutes, I think. Like They're really forensic in their uh, looking at each mm-hmm. thing he does, the way he... But then, on the, on the other the hand, the series on Sky, made by the award-winning uh, director and writer Jim Sheridan, that that uh, pursues the theory that it was not Ian Bailey, that it was a, a, a French um, a hitman or whatever that was flown in and was seen around school, this unidentified. And um, yeah. Jim, Jim is adamant about that, Rosita. Adamant. I love Jim Sheridan, but I do not think that was his finest hour. The other thing I believe, Joe, is like, why not get DNA? You know, the, the night Sophie was murdered, the um, John mm-hmm. Harbison didn't come down because it was just before Christmas. Like her body was left out there. And, and that's just yeah. uh, stay there, Rosita, because you're prompting me now. Uh, you in your book, Nick, you say that the. The Plantier family, I think it's Sophie's sister or sister-in-law, had uh, had a special, uh, e-special criticism of the state pathologist at the time, the late John Harbinson. And he said, she said, according to your book, there's a special place in hell for him. This is a state pathologist. Why were they so, why, why were they so upset about the state pathologist? Well, they were they were so upset, I think, in a general sense, that the that the that the crime scene wasn't properly wasn't probably attended to, but the state pathologist, I think it's a matter of record, arrived arrived a bit late. And I think they think that if the state pathologist had arrived uh, sooner, mm-hmm. he would have been able to narrow down the time of death because he left, he, you know, the, yeah. the window of the time of death, according to Hobson, was really, it was really kind of late at night that night to dawn in the morning. It was it was a, a window of time of something like eight hours. It, was, it wasn't helpful. And I thought that, look, and it's, I say so in the book, huh? It was a friend of the of the of, of, of um, Daniel Toscan Duplant who said that. I thought, and I say so in the book. I thought she overreacted, but it, it kind of shows the emotions that, mm-hmm. that that come out in this story. And, and we've had them on the show, right? All the people have they've taken time to call you. It's an emotional. It's an emotional story, and you know, and and I think that that was the her particular mm-hmm. emotion, Catherine Clement, she was called. That was playing out there in that in, in that in that comment. Okay, stay stay with us. I want to ask you about uh, Horley's garage and uh, this this uh, other witness, Ariana. After the break, Joe at RT.ie. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Joe Duffy. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Horley's Garage, that incident, and I often wondered why it did not feature more. Will you remind, excuse me, listeners, please, Fran, at the incident uh, in in Dean Beatty's car at Horley's Garage? Yeah, so this really, really, really intrigued me. So um, 
it turns out that um, there's a garage, a petrol station, mm-hmm. um, on the road outside of Skibbereen, and um, the man um, manning the pumps um, on the 21st of December 1996, it's called Sean Murray, he um, told guards that he um, sold petrol to um, Sophie Toscandu Plantier, but that she was not alone in the hire car that she was driving when she bought the, bought the fuel. And he described to guards that the there was a man on the passenger seat next to next to Sophie who was very very tall. So the, mm-hmm. the, the 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 seat was kind of pushed back to accommodate the the big frame or the long legs of this man. He had dark hair and he spoke with an English accent or possibly an Irish accent. And um, that that intrigued me right from the beginning. And I think the first thing to say about that is that um, you know what, reading the Garda file, you really get the impression that people are doing the civic duty. Everybody is coming forward to give whatever snippet of information, whatever little thing that they that they've seen or that they know to the guards, with one exception, this man. Mm. So if Sophie was accompanied in her hire car on that journey to a holiday home, why did this man not come forward? Because it seems to me that he's kind of the only one who didn't. And so, um, like you, I got really, really fascinated by this. And um, I was chatting with Ian Bailey about it a few times, also with the um, with, with, with the French family, and they felt that it was important and, and the mm. guards hadn't really paid much attention to it. And the their theory was that the guards hadn't paid much attention to it because they kind of simply didn't believe that Sophie had been with anybody on that journey um, to Tormore, that she simply picked up the car on her own and she drove off um, on her own and she arrived on her and own. Your, your, your theory, if my memory serves, your theory is that Ian Bailey might have been in Cork Airport deliberately. Well, or, or somewhere along the way, either, um, yeah. at Cork Airport, at a site of cameras. There weren't very many cameras back in the day there. Okay. Or possibly somewhere on the on the road. But um, um, but, so, and, and this, this puts the lie... To the now, other people have 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 contradicted him, Bailey, in this that he never met Sophie, or he, he fleetingly well, met her that, once. Yeah, and what happened to me was that I that I obviously knew about this. I was fascinated, and and I mentioned it to him, Bailey. He said, "Oh, uh, Sean Murray, why don't we go and see him now?" And I, I was having lunch with um, Bailey and Jules Thomas in Skibbereen. I mean, it was only like a five-minute drive, and I thought, this is strange. Um, Ian Bailey's, um, you know, asking me if I'm willing to go and see a witness um, with him. But mm. I thought, well, you know, let's see what happens. So, I, you know, we, we were in my car, and we, we drove off. We got to um, um, Hurley's garage, and, and, and Sean Murray's there. Um, obviously, the years have gone by. And um, Ian Bailey starts to ask um, Sean Murray about the details. I'm just listening about the details of the... Uh, of, of what he saw that day, and then suddenly Bailey, exactly, suddenly Bailey blurts out, "Was it me in the car?" And Sean Murray goes, "Hmm, I don't know. I don't know who it was in the car." I mean, he, he Bailey was clearly looking for Sean Murray to say, "I tell you what, it wasn't you. No, it wasn't you in the car." And he didn't do that. And I was really struck because I felt that Bailey had, let's say, overplayed his hand. You know, Bailey had been fairly confident that Sean Murray would say, no, 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 no it wasn't okay. you in the car. Okay. But he okay. didn't do so. Okay, Rory O'Connor, you want to put a point to uh, Nick Foster. Go ahead, Rory. Hi, Joe. Uh, I'm just thinking that um, there's actually no direct physical evidence, forensic evidence, to link this man with the murder of this poor woman, Sophia Tuscan de Plantier. Mm. Uh, 
guilty to, to accuse a man of this and find him guilty, the evidence must be absolutely waterproof. There's a lot of circumstances. Well, it has, to be, it, has to be yeah. be, it has to be beyond reasonable doubt. There's yeah, no yeah. there's no evidence that's ever going to can be 100%. I know, but can I finish? Yeah, please? of course you can, Roy. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. There's evidence of past misdemeanors. Mm-hmm. There's evidence of his violent nature. There's all that there. Okay. But the point is, from this particular case, there's nothing that the guards found that could actually link him without reasonable doubt to the murder of this woman. Now, the DPP has <clears throat> thrown the case out twice. So he has looked at it and he has said that he will not hold up in court. Mm-hmm. And I would just... A DPP is not infallible. Can I finish? Yeah, DPP uh, is not infallible. Just, There's yeah, no, no one infallible in this atten- society. I would just bring your attention to what happened in the UK with uh, the programme recently, Mr. Bates, in the post office, how innocent people were convicted of a crime which they didn't commit. So, in law, the law must be very factual. There must be no room mm-hmm. for emotion at all. Okay, Nick, do you want to respond to that? Is all your theories? Yeah, of course are, I get sir. that. I mean, it's yeah. This I get that. Some of the first time it's come up. The the the, the issue is that um, beyond reasonable doubt does not mean beyond reasonable doubt. Plus, do you have any DNA evidence? If not, we're going to throw it out. The as the as the as the French prosecutor said, here's there's a there's a a collection of evidence which is extremely powerful, putting in the direction of the guilty of Ian Bailey, and. I, I agree. I agree. And then once again, you know, all the people that have called in who, um, like just about everybody else in Ireland, who haven't seen the the, the Garda file, it would be just so great if, if everybody could. It would just be so great if everybody could. And then all those callers would be able to arrive at their own conclusion based on what they read. That, I think, would be the, you know, the way forward. What about, what do you think of that response, Rory, please? Uh, yes, but a conclusion based on opinions may not be factually correct. You have mm-hmm. to be absolutely certain, as far as I'm concerned, in such a serious matter. And the fact that, and he, the the fact that he made admissions to an, a, a significant number yes, of different people. Yes, there's lots of characters who admit things, and that's down to history in the court cases. You'll find that and once, the, once the detectives and the guards or the police investigate the case, you'll often find that people admit to things they didn't do for various reasons. Mm-hmm. So that is not good enough. Well, I, you well, have well, to be... Well, well, I don't... I'm, yeah. I'm not a detective, but I was a probation officer for a number of years. And I've I dealt in their when they on their release. I invariably uh, had murderers who had served their sentence and were on license. Uh, in in they were they were in my care, so to speak. And also, I made some private mm. visits to prisons in recent years. Had a matter have met uh, other murderers. Um, and it strikes me one their their narcissism is uh, unbounded. Their delusion is unbounded. Now I know you can't on the basis of that. I can't uh, make any uh, make any judgments, but they're, they 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 are delusional. I've I've never met anyone now. This is a limited experience, Rory. I've never met anyone who mm. would who admitted to a crime that they did not commit, even even jokingly, if you follow me. And Ian Bailey was going around to this young young man, for example, Malika Reed, to the Shelley family, to a number of other people, saying. And the DPP, Bailey's team said this is black humour and the DPP uh, ran with that. But of the murderers I've dealt with, I've never, uh, uh, they are usually extraordinarily contrite, extraordinarily contrite and will not talk about the case, will not talk about the case. Um, but here we have Bailey saying, I did it, I did it, I did it. And you're, what, what, he, was, he was saying that because he's an attention seeker. 
I don't know anything about that, Joe. All I'm saying is that mm-hmm. the guards investigated it. They collected the evidence available to them. They presented it to the DPP. He took a cold, hard look at it and said, sorry, it won't hold up in court. Okay. They can be going on okay. and uh, drawing conclusions about this, that and the other forever. But the DPP looked at it and said, sorry, gentlemen, it will not hold up in court. Well, would you like it to be looked at again? On the base, like, no, no, well, you can't say because Nick, this this man, Nick Foster, was given obviously, Ian Bailey was given the file so he could uh, defend himself if it ever came to that. He gave the file to Nick Foster. Nick Foster has gone to I presume you've no skin in the game here, have you, Nick? You're not, you're not a millionaire because it is, are you? No, and you know what? At the beginning, I thought that you know the best thing I could do in this particular case was to find some way of demonstrating Ian Bailey's innocence fundamentally because i i kind of i'm I'm going to come in a little bit of an angle to what you just said because i think that sometimes even eloquent people like like ian bailey sometimes they're not the best pace place people to find their own defense Mm -hmm. you know to work out to work out the 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 single piece of evidence or perhaps multiple pieces pieces of evidence that will you know ultimately exonerate them so that that was where I came into the story, and it was only because of the, 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 the you know, the powerful evidence that the um, that the God of Hell contains, and then obviously my interaction okay, with tell us, tell us with Ian Bailey as well that, that yeah, okay. made me draw that conclusion. And you're you're adamant. Tell me about this woman Ariana. You went to Italy to interview her. Again, uh-huh. someone so, Ariana, someone that uh, hasn't featured prominently in in discourse at all, and, and it, it's somebody who. We didn't feature prominently either in Irish newspapers or any media coverage. So, Arena Barrina was uh, uh, is an Italian woman. At the time, she was a young woman. She was friendly with one of um, Jules's daughters, and she arrived at the um, mm-hmm. um, Thomas uh, household um, basically just after the murder. And so, she was a neutral, a totally neutral, impartial observer of what she saw in that household. And I tracked her down in in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Italy to, to to interview her, and it was really really interesting. Interesting because she talks about um, the scratches. Mm-hmm. She mentioned to me that the scratches were from what she remembers, and and from her point of view, the kind of scratches caused by briars or thorns. And mm-hmm. she certainly remembered as well gash on Ian Bailey's forehead. Mm-hmm. Um, she talked to me a lot more, and it's and it's in the book about didn't, the didn't, particular didn't atmosphere and. At that period, okay, yeah, and and did she not have evidence or uh, about the overcoat? Yeah, indeed. Well, it's it, it's a stretch to say the overcoat. What what? Uh, and I wanted to be really really clear about what she remembered, and mm. you know, to make sure that 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 her memory would kind of came out as, as as clear as possible. So what it was was that she went into the bathroom to I think dry her hair mm-hmm. or. or, or or something, and she noticed that there was a dark mass of clothing mm-hmm. um, soaking in the in the bathtub. And I said, "Dark mass? What does that mean?" She said, "I'm not sure because I saw it from a distance and it was kind of submerged, but it was there. It was soaking." So to say that it was an overcoat, that's not what she said. She okay, she okay, that's fair. And what it about, was material? It was heavy okay. material. Oh. Now she did give it. Was it a one-page statement to the guardie? Yeah, it was it was it was pretty it was pretty short, but mm. what was interesting to me at least was that she was a kind of a neutral observer. She was right there at the eye of the storm, mm-hmm. um, Bailey Thomas household just after the uh, the murder, and she I found her the most fascinating of all 
uh, witnesses because she didn't have any, talking about skin in the game, she didn't have any skin in the game at all. She was friendly with one of Jules' daughters. She she just kind of landed there. She was able to relate what she what, what she saw. And what um, I really kind of found mm-hmm. interesting was the question of the scratches. That was absolutely clear. And the nervousness. Yeah, she told me about the nervousness of that of that community. You know, the 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 the, the, the women on the one mm-hmm. hand, in Bailey on the other hand, the sense that you know something was going on. There was okay. real nerves okay. in, okay. in the household. Stay with us, Joe at RT.ie. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 Talk to Joe on 0818-715-815. And Nick, Ian Bailey is now dead. What, what do you think could happen or what would you like to happen that might move the resolution of this horrific crime on? You know, the whole thing I find sad and depressing because because I don't think there is a resolution. I mean, Ian Bailey's dead, so the the only suspect isn't here, can't take the stand, can't be cross-examined. I know for the family this must be terribly, terribly painful mm. because there's no chance of justice. So in a sense, we're left with with no resolution at all. And I just come back to some of you know your, your callers, I think Rory, for instance. Mm. I, I mean, wouldn't it be better, wouldn't it have been better if Ian Bailey had been put on trial? I mean, surely the, the whole question of his guilt or innocence was for a, a, a jury of, of Irish men and Irish women. Like, you know, that would have been surely the best, because I can understand we can squabble a little bit about the uh, about the DPP, about whether or not they were a little bit naive. I certainly mm. think that they were. You know, we can we can we can squabble about that as as long as we like. But at the end of the day, had that decision been taken to put uh, Ian Bailey on trial in Ireland, we would have a resolution. We would have had a resolution. And I think part of the a great part of the pain that that Pierre Louis, um, Sophie Stern, and, and and the parents and 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 the whole family and the entourage. His feeling is because there wasn't a trial in Ireland. That that's the thing. But now that that's Ian now that Ian Bailey has passed and and R.I.P. Did did um is there anyone? I don't know with any names, obviously. Do you think there's people out there who now might be free to speak? In that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I you know what? In, in in all the time I was um, following this case, I was always really surprised that there was this fear of speaking out. In this case, fear mm. of people, not all. I mean, a lot of people yeah, came forward, yeah. as, I, as I said, a few, ta- a few times. But some people were afraid of coming forward and, and, and speaking. One or two people came to me and, you know, kind of ran their stories past me. And I said, yeah, but you've got to go to the guards. That, that's that's what they're yeah, there for, okay. right? And I, I think it could be the case that there are people who will now um, speak out because for whatever reason, they didn't want to do so well. While Ian Bailey was uh, okay. was alive, okay. let's hope so. Let's okay. hope so. Okay, the book is called "Murder at Roaring Water: Inside Story to Death of Sophie Toscanoplady" by Nick Foster. It's available in your wonderful, wonderful local libraries, or indeed bookshops, or indeed uh, online. Nick Foster and all our callers, uh, thank you, uh, thank you uh, so much. Mark Dwyer and Sound Broadcast Coordinator Shane Galvin, producer and Dean Maloney, and a special thanks today to someone who's departing us hopefully for only a short time is the wonderful Holly Mead, who's been with us and a fantastic part of the team uh, for the best part of the year. Thanks, Holly. And we will all be back tomorrow. And this is Ray Darcy. 0818 715 815 stays open until 3.15pm or email joe at rte.ie.